What's up, church? Hello, hello, hello. If you are joining us online, if you're in Hayward, so glad that you are able to do that. And uh, before we get started, look, let's just be honest. We all know why we're here today at the 11 o'clock service. We're here because either we didn't know that today was the NFC Championship game, the 49ers are playing in. We don't care that it's the NFC Championship game. I feel like maybe that. Or you're a Raiders fan. One of those, it's one of those three. Okay, so anyway, uh, I'm going to, uh, since I feel like it's probably that for everybody, I'm just going to take my sweet time, and this could be like an hour and a half. So just hopefully you're okay with that. Listen, I, uh, I, I enjoyed just our, our time in uh, singing, and I, I love just that we can bring our celebration to the Lord. And it's, you know, it's, it's the celebration of what God has done for us. You know, it's not about the instruments or the music. It's, it's about what God has done for us. And so that kind of moves our feet a little bit. And maybe that's new for you, but you know, you just, you just kind of feel excited about, about God and what he's done. And, and um, so I'm just, I'm really glad that we have that opportunity to do that. And, and <clears throat> excuse me. And in saying that, I do want to just let you know that's uh, where we're going to go from here, from our, our exuberant time of worship. Uh, we're actually going to move into a, probably a little bit more of a solemn topic, especially at the beginning. So I just want to let you know that that's coming, and, um, but we'll go through this, and I promise you it's going to end well. So we'll be, uh, we'll <laughs> we will be able to move our feet again by the end. Uh, I would say that there is... A lot going on in our society today that is bringing on, at least for myself, and maybe you're feeling it, uh, but a sense of heaviness. Um, with all that's gone on over the last few years with um, political scandals and the nonstop barrage of noise from social media, you know, we have international conflicts going on, uh, there's an uncertain economy and personal tragedy, and, and now just this week we have two new instances of violence that are affecting us. And um, it's, well, I don't mean to be cliche, but it's heavy and it's a lot. And it's not just things that are happening far away, not just things happening out and around us, but even things that are happening in our own lives, things popping up in our personal lives. Uh, It would be impossible for us as, as close as we live to the Silicon Valley it would be impossible for us to not be affected by all of the massive layoffs that are going on in the tech world. We're seeing people even in our own congregation who just have personal conflict and are wrestling through those things. Um, There's been death, there's been layoffs, barrenness, separation, divorce. And many of us, just myself included, there's just, there are things happening even in our own personal lives that are bringing, uh, bringing us trouble. And a natural response to this kind of heaviness, whether it's, whether it's happening outside of us or it's happening within us, can be a sense of anxiety, a sense of worry. Now, defining anxiety is tricky because it affects people in different ways. But it generally means this, that anxiety is an intense, excessive, and persistent worry or fear of circumstances or the consequences of those circumstances. It's this paralyzing sense of fear and helplessness and despair where we we think to ourselves, I'm in trouble, I'm no good, and I am absolutely unable to fix or change my circumstances. 
And I would say it is no wonder why so many people in our world are going through bits of anxiety and worry. In fact, uh, just looking up these statistics, uh, six and a half million adults have been diagnosed with general anxiety disorder. Another six million suffer from panic disorders. 15 million adults suffer from social anxiety disorders, which is not the same as, oh, I'm shy. Like it's actually something deeper than that. And 31%, almost one out of three Americans will experience some form of an anxiety disorder sometime in their lifetime. These are real statistics. This is not just out in the ether. This is affecting us. And what what we tend to do in situations of anxiety, the two obvious solutions, one is to run from the problem. So there's, there's typically things that cause anxiety in our lives. Maybe it's a person, maybe it's a job, maybe it's a loss of something. And so what we'll do is we'll run from the problem. We'll run from the thing that's causing the anxiety. So, so we'll get a new job or we'll, we'll start a new relationship or we'll move to a new state, or we'll go to a new church. So we'll, we'll leave the thing that was causing the anxiety and we'll just go to something else. Or if that doesn't work, we'll try to just completely remove the problem. So we won't just go to a new church, we'll stop going to church. We won't just build or work on relationships, we'll just end them. Now I'm not demonizing maybe taking some of those steps, because sometimes those might be appropriate. But the fatal flaw in both of them is believing that we have total control over our own lives, and secondly, that we can fix our own problems. And so those things in and of themselves may not be bad, but the flaw is when we believe, if I just do these things, then I'll be okay. And what doesn't help are the people who try to help. And say things to us with good intention. And say things to us like, well, it's all just in your head. And, uh, oh, you're anxious? I get anxious too. We're twinsies. It's you and me together. Or when you share, you know, you step out in that scary zone and you share that you wrestle with anxiety. And they say back to you, is this my fault? Right? They put it back on themselves. And then the best one is, well, you just need to calm down and stop worrying. The beauty of the life of the disciple is that God gives us another way. In fact, God doesn't just give us another way. God gives us the way. Now, what I don't aim to do today is to solve the problem of your anxiety because I can't do that. And it's not possible for me to do that. And there's no magic formula to do that. But what I want to point you towards in the scriptures is a pathway to how to build up peace in your life. That's what I want to do today. If you have your Bibles, open them up to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. If you're new to the scriptures, 2 Kings is in the New Testament or excuse me, the Old Testament. (laughs) Oh, oh, what is that? Ooh, shame. Oh, come on. You guys didn't even know there was a football game today. 
I love you guys. And if you would stand for the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 8. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God, the prophet Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. The king of Israel sent to this place about which the man of God told him, and thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of the servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak even in your own bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? He said to him, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed, and said, O Lord, please open the eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to him, This is not the way that you, this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. This is God's word for us this morning, and all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. I love this story. This is high on my list of videos that I'm going to rent uh, when I get to heaven, because I just would love to see this play out. Those of you who are younger, you used to have to go to a store to rent an actual copy of a video, and then you had to return it rewound or else. As I said, what I want to do today is give you not, not, I don't want to try to solve your problem because I can't do that, but I do want to give you a pathway through the scriptures and through the truth of God's word to help you begin to build peace into your life. And so what you're going to see today is the need, in the sermon, we're going to talk about the need for peace, the presence of peace, and the provision of peace. Of peace. First, the need. It should come as no surprise to any of us that we live in an uncertain world. And that feels like an understatement. It almost sounds cliche to say it out loud, but it's true. And if the events of the last five years uh, have not proven that to you, if all that we've seen in our society and in the world have, have not shown you that the, the, the future is uncertain then I don't know what else will. But in fact, let's go deeper than that. The uncertainty of the future has always been set since the beginning of time. And uncertainty is, is an extremely troubling thing for us, not just for our type A planners in the room, but because you, you, can't, you can't know, and if you can't know what to do, if you don't know what's happening in the future, then you can't 
prepare for it. Psychologists have noticed that, that human beings uh, have become more and more inept at adapting to change, even though the rate of change in our culture and in our society is only getting faster and accelerating. I mean, think about how much we've changed even the definition of words over the last few years, where words that held definition for millennia, things, things like family and sex and country and economy and news, fake news, church, Christian, all of these things that, that held definition for, for millennia now are almost up for grabs. And it's impossible to keep up to date with how things are changing. And it's not just words. No one can predict the economy. No one can predict the political landscape or even the weather. And because of that, because of our inability to be able to know the future and know what's, know what's happening, it is a, well, it's a, it brings us face to face with the fact that we're actually not as smart as we think we are. Add to that the reality of sin in the world. Now, I don't think this point needs to be belabored, but just to make sure that we're on the same page, the biggest problem in the world isn't climate change or economic downturn or the high price of eggs, which some of you bought chickens this week, and that may be a good idea. The problem... The, the biggest problem in the world is you and me and our sin, isn't it? The biggest problem in the world is sin that stems from you and me, our selfishness. Sin, sin makes us hate our neighbor, lie to our father, be selfish to our spouse, and push people away. I mean, just from this passage... You, we see that the northern kingdom of Israel is at war with Syria. Now, why are Israel and Syria at it? Are, are, why are they at war? Because sin makes nations rise up against each other out of fear and jealousy and greed. And sin makes rulers use their subjects as pawns for their own gain. How about this? Why is there even a northern kingdom of Israel? How did that happen? I thought there was only Israel. Because the once unified nation split in two, where you had Judah in the south and Israel in the north. See, sin, we underestimate the power of sin so often. And when we do, it's like opening a door to our own destruction. So when you look at the brokenness and the hurt in the world, and you look at the uncertainty that is in the world, it is easy to become extremely anxious. Why? Because not only are we not as smart as we thought we were, but we're also not as good as we thought we were. So when you take the uncertainty of the world and you add to it the reality of sin, you begin to realize, I'm not in control of my own life. And we all like control, listen, we worship at the idol of control. I do. So like three weeks ago when we had those big rains, do you remember the, the big rain on New Year's Eve? You remember that, right? And all the native Bay Areans were like freaking out and panicking and everyone who's moved here from everywhere else was just like, no, it's cool. Like we'll get through it. Don't worry. Like calm down, right? Um, 
They used that phrase, calm down, and it didn't work on us. So all of a sudden, it's in the morning time, New Year's Eve. I go down into our basement. We live on a hill, and there's like almost an inch of water on the ground. Like, that's not good. And so, and it wasn't there the night before. So uh, I immediately panic, and I'm in my bathrobe, and, and I'm like, okay, where is this water coming from? And so I, I crawl underneath the house, and I'm trying to figure out where is the water coming from, where is it seeping through, and I notice the water's not seeping on the top, on the surface, like on the, on the dirt and like going down into the basement. The water is underground. There's an underground river flowing into the basement. And, and so I realize I can't sandbag this. There's no way I can stop it. And so you know what I did? I, I had this urge, and I almost did it. I didn't, but I had this urge to just lay down on the ground and, and like just hug the earth and try to squeeze the water back. Like that was going through my head. Maybe if I just will the water, it'll go the other way. Why? And in that moment, I felt completely powerless to stop the water coming into the house. Now, whether you find that story amusing or not, and I'm sure many of us have those kinds of stories, the truth is the idol of control is, seems like a wonderful idol, but it is a fleeting idol, and it makes for a horrible God. Because the reality of life is that you and I are actually not in control I mean, who here can control the sands of time or the oncoming of a life-altering sickness or the death of a loved one or even the winds of change in our culture? None of us can. We may have these little pockets of control, you know, in our daily life. You know, am I going to take 880 or am I going to take 680 or whatever it is? Like, like we, we, we have those moments, sure. But on, on the things that matter and the things that last and the things that, that take root, no, we really don't. We're really not in control of our lives as much as we think we are. Now, these are reasons that give us anxiety. Now, I want you to understand this, though. Those are all, a lot of those things are things that happen outside of us, right? Um, they're external. And those things certainly can cause anxiety. But there are internal things as well. There are choices that we make that actually, can we just be honest, that contribute towards our own anxiety as well. So for instance, if you spend all your time on social media, just scrolling through, laughing, commenting, hating, um, just all of it, like you're going to become more of an anxious person. You just are. You're, you're going to get riled up. Um, if you don't get, this is just physiological, if you don't get enough sleep at night or you aren't getting any exercise or you have a bad diet, like these things, these things can contribute to anxiety. Like these are, these are physiological things that can manifest themselves psychologically. Uh, if, if, if you are frivolous with your money and there's just never quite enough, and you're always, always at the end of the month, and you're like, oh, I just need three more days, right? Because, not because, like, you didn't get enough money, but because you spent too much. Like, that causes, like, that's on us, right? That's on us. That's on you. That's on me. So there are things that we do that can increase this, increase the levels of anxiety in our lives. And so whether it's internal, external, whether it comes from the outside or the inside, the truth is, and I, I know you see it, there is great need for peace in our lives. That's why we must turn to the presence, the presence of peace. In, in the, the Israel of 2 Kings 6 is very different than the Israel under King David. 
uh, under Joshua, under Moses and Abraham. And, and by now, as we've said, there, there's been a breakdown of the monarchy. The nation is split uh, into two. Uh, and, and we see Israel in the north is at war constantly with Syria, its neighbor to its immediate east. And uh, in the middle of that is Elisha, the prophet. Elisha, the prophet. Now, um, Elisha, I'm going to only do this for a moment, then you'll, you'll figure it out. Elisha, the prophet, was commissioned by Elijah. I, know I'm, I don't know if I'm making this more muddy and confusing, but just... Elisha was commissioned by Elijah, the prophet, okay? And now Elisha, I'll stop doing it in a second, is, is now he's the man of God. So when you read it earlier and it said the man of God in Israel, that's who it was talking about, okay? So he's in the middle of this conflict, and, uh, and, so, and so the Syrian king, he keeps trying to, like, set traps for the Israeli army, right? He's trying to set traps for their army, but Elisha, who is uh, hearing from the Lord, is warning the king of Israel, don't go there, don't go there, don't go there, and eventually Syria gets wise and realizes uh, they're figuring it out because of Elisha, and he is giving away our position, so the king of Syria is like, well, okay, then uh, we need to take out Elisha. So, we could pick up the story in verse 14, so he sent there to where Elisha was, horses and chariots and a great army, and they came uh, by night and surrounded the city. Now this is, this is no small thing. An entire army is there for one guy. For one guy. This is, I don't know if I'd call this overkill, but this is certainly a show of force. Verse 15, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? Now, the servant of Elisha has a legitimate concern for anxiety in this moment, right? They are in an impossible situation. There is no way for them to get out. He's clearly uh, full of worry and, and fear and anxiety in this moment. I mean, he used the word alas, so you know things are going bad. Uh, it's, it's uncertain to him how things are going to go. There is no clear path out of there. They are they are naked and alone and surrounded by the enemy. And how Elisha responds and what happens next is one of my favorite stories and one of my favorite things to picture from the Old Testament. Verse 16, it says, Do not be afraid. Listen to what he says. Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Really? Verse 17, then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So in the middle of this impossible situation, what does God do? God gives a reason for peace. There are more with us, servant, than there are with them. And the more with us are, is an angelic army on fire. I think we're going to win this one. Now, what happens is that God brings peace to the servant of Elisha. And this peace is an indication of a few things. The first is God's protection. And this one should be... Uh, obvious, but the Syrian king who surrounded the city 
now is surrounded by an angelic. I mean, you, you read in the scriptures, and every time someone meets an angel in the scriptures, what do they do? They think they're done for. Like, they, it's not like, hey, they got, there's angels here. Let's rock out. Let's, dude, where were those wings? No, they fall on their face in fear when they see an angel. And the servant realizes they're on our side. They're with us. See, one of the reasons why in, in ancient cities that you would have a wall around the city and the people were able to sleep at night and rest because they had the wall and they had people staked at the walls to protect themselves from invading armies. I mean, it's one of the reasons why maybe you, I'm sure you lock your doors at night and maybe you have an alarm system and maybe you have a dog and maybe like, like, like we have these measures so that we feel safe. And the servant of Elijah doesn't just feel safe, he has an assurance of it. That's what peace does. It gives us an assurance, ready, that God is on our side. Philippians 4, 7 says, The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see the word guard there? That's a, that was a military term that Paul used in that passage saying that the peace of God guards you. It guards your mind as to what you're thinking. It guards your heart, the things that you're feeling. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Who shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? This is King David scoffing at his enemies. Who do you think you are? You have no power here. You have no ability to rattle my cage because the God of the universe is standing right beside me. So it's a protection, but it's also his presence. Peace comes from knowing that God is near to you. The chariots of fire in 2 Kings were not just a display of God's power, but also an assurance of his presence in the, in the valley. Now consider that reality for just a moment. Do you know that God is near you? Now what I didn't ask you, what I didn't ask you was do you believe that God is near you? Because we have this thing in American evangelicalism where we, we suppose that if we believe something, and this is not just in us, but like in, in, in the West, where if you believe something, then it will manifest itself. If you just believe that you're strong, if you just believe enough in yourself, then the thing that you want most will just come about. And that's just dumb because we're not as, sorry, strong? Yeah, we're just, we're not as, we're, we think we have all the power, but we don't. What I asked you was, do you know that God is near you? Because God is near you whether, ready? Whether you believe it or not. Whether you feel it or not. The presence of God is near you and it's meant to bring you peace. So we have protection. We have the presence, protection from God or of God. We have the, uh, the presence of God, which then what? It actually begins to change our perspective. It actually begins to give us a new perspective, a new worldview on our circumstances, on the things that are causing us the anxiety. For instance, with this kind of godly perspective, 
we understand that even though God didn't make a world with violence and suffering and sin and anxiety, that God has a long plan to bring everything into the right, to restore everything that was broken, that God does not make mistakes, that he's not late, that he never says oops, that, he, that you never leave his gaze, and that God is bringing all things as the scriptures teach us, he's bringing all things into reconciliation, which started in Jesus Christ and ends in Jesus Christ. It also reminds us, this perspective reminds us that there is actually great certainty with God, that there is an end to the reality of sin, and that while we may not be in control, God is. God is. Do you know that this is what God's peace does to us? God's peace actually begins to transform our minds and our reorients our beliefs. When we experience God's perspective, his protection, and his presence, it actually begins to change the way we see and believe the way that God works. Having right beliefs Look, I told you, and, I, and this is true, your beliefs do not make things about God a reality. But God wants you to have right beliefs about him. Does that make sense? Like, you do not determine who God is, but God wants you to know who he is. And so, that's why it's so important, that's why we have an invitation to learn about who God is. And what's the primary way we do that? One of the primary ways we learn about who God is is through the scriptures. Friends, I love you. If you're not reading the scriptures on your own but only when I tell you to, you will, have, you will be limited in what you will learn about God. I love you. I want you to read this for yourself. I want you to know God's story because it's right here. That's not meant to shame you or guilt you. That's an invitation from God to you. God's peace calms our hearts. In a world that never takes a day off, God actually can bring us to center, bring us to tranquility. That even in the midst and in the face of great trials and tribulations, we can find our peace. And it gives us strength Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of, the e uh, of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that there is a strength that comes not from within ourselves to face the hardship of the world, to face the uncertainty, to face the sin, to face our lack of control, but there is a strength that comes from God himself, and he wants us to be strengthened. He wants us to be prepared. Did you catch that? God is inviting us 
to be strengthened and prepared. And don't you find it interesting that Paul's prayer and his exhortation here is not that God would just wipe away and remove all of the things that cause hardship and anxiety in our lives, but actually that we would reach into the person in the presence of God to be strengthened ourselves. Do you notice that? I mean, by all means, it's not a bad thing to pray, God, would you remove this thing, this person, this circumstance, whatever it is that is causing me anxiety. That's not a bad prayer, but would you please add on to that, and God, would you also build me up, increase my faith, increase my resolve, increase my trust and my patience so that I may be able to stand in peace in the face of such adversity. So we have the presence of peace, but we also have the provision of it. This peace comes to us. This peace comes to us. God sees us. He cares about us. He provides for us. This is our God. The provision of peace is meant to affect our beliefs in God. James 1 says that every good and perfect gift is from above. Elisha and the servant were direct beneficiaries of God's provision. It came from him and to them. God directs his blessings towards his people of earth. And so do you know how you receive? Do you know how you actually begin to receive? And we've already kind of talked about this. But it comes from having a new perspective on the light, or excuse me, the love and the grace and the mercy of God. That God actually is for you. I know sometimes we wrestle with that. But God is actually for you. And so you take a step back and you begin to just see more and more the ways that God has worked in your life, worked in other people's lives. You look at the story of the scriptures and go, oh, wow, he's actually been at work since the very beginning. He's never been late. He's never said oops. He's with me. He's near me. He loves me. He's rooting for me. He's on my side. He, ha- he, is, more, he is more than a, an army of chariots of fire. And yet, God wants us to grow in that knowledge. Why? Because it's that knowledge that actually comes to us. So in the moments and in the times and in the seasons and in the life of anxiety, what do we do? What do we fall upon? We fall upon the knowledge that God is for us. And that God is actually working things out to bring us peace. I mean, it is, there is a cerebral uh, point to this where we have to adjust and change our beliefs. And we trust that what the Bible says about our God is true. It doesn't just come to us, though. This peace comes for us. It comes for us. There's a shift in the narrative that, honestly, I hadn't seen before uh, and when, until I was studying for this sermon. But you, you, you might notice that in verses 15 through 17, the servant uh, goes from being blind to the chariots of fire to being able to see them, right? I, I, think, I think Elisha was always able to see them. That's my opinion. I think he was able to see them because he prays that the servant would be able to see them. And so now, all of a sudden, the servant is able to see this incredible army that was always there. And in verse 18, it says that Elisha prayed, and God struck the Syrian army with blindness, and Elisha leads them to the capital of Israel, into Samaria. And so the shift of the narrative is that those who once had all of the strength and the advantage 
became weak. And Syria had all of the strength and advantage, but was humbled by God in order for Israel to be saved. And don't you see that the price for our peace was that the one who had all of the strength and the advantage was humbled by the Father in order to make a way for our salvation and our peace. And the difference between the humbling of Syria and the humbling of Jesus is that Jesus did it willingly and with joy. We hit this passage all the time, but I think it's so important. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says that for the joy that was set before him, meaning Jesus, he endured the cross. So there was something that was giving Jesus joy that made him endure the cross. And you know what that was. It was you. It was me. It was the one thing that Jesus didn't have. The one thing that he wanted more than anything else. So he endured the cross. The joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And so Jesus willingly becomes weak so that you and I can find our peace and our salvation in this tumultuous world. Because Jesus is for us. He's a good king who lays down his life. And even though we're as blind as the servant and as wicked as the Syrians, Jesus went to the cross so that we could receive the grace of salvation and the strength necessary to stand firm in this tumultuous world. Finally, this peace comes from us. The chariots of fire is definitely a spectacular part of the story, and, but I think the best part of this story actually comes in verses 20 through 23, which we didn't read earlier. But if we're talking about gospel refractions in this series, well, here it is. So God strikes the Syrians with blindness, and Elisha is leading them to the capital of Israel. and says this in verse 20, As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? The king of Israel is ready. He's like, these were our enemies. They made war on us. They tried to entrap us, and now they're our prisoners, and they're defenseless, and they're probably filled with anxiety in this moment. Elisha, prophet, father, should we, should we go to work? Should we go to knife work right now? He's ready to exact revenge on a people that deserve it. But what does it say? You shall not strike them down. Verse 22, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master and the Syrians did not come again on raids in the land of Israel. Now, how cool is that? Because honestly, that's not how that story should end. See, in terms of gospel refractions, what we, what we learn is that I actually was making war on the king of Israel. 
I was making war on the king of Israel. And then the king of Israel had me in his sights and had every right to do away with me. But what does he do instead? He sets a table. He sets a table. And the beauty is, is that you and I, though deserving of death, though, at, though for every conceivable reason we deserved to be put to death because of the war that we had made on God, instead he sets a table for us, a banqueting table, and invites us into peace. And the joy that we have is to refract what we've received. Do you know that word refraction? It means when light passes through a prism and it separates into all of the different colors and you can see all the different facets of the, of the light, right? You can see all the different colors. And so the light of Jesus comes in and through us and the people in our lives, in our immediate context, get to see the beauty of the light and the love of Jesus. And one of those facets, friends, is the peace that we've received. The reality that no matter what happens in our lives or the world around us, God is near, God is protecting us, God is in control, and no matter what the world, the enemy, or my sin throws at me, I am safe in the city because my God is guarding and protecting me. And he has set a table before me. Friends, that's, that's what refraction is. We get to share that with the world. You know, one of the mistakes that we make so often is that we, we receive something good from the Lord and we, for whatever reason, hold on to it. We keep it to ourselves. God has blessed us. God has given us the ability to build peace into our life by understanding and seeing the way he works so that we can be a refraction of his peace into other people's lives. So what we've experienced, let's share that. Do you know why? Because the world is going to hell and people are hurting and suffering and just as the Lord in his grace and kindness reached out to us, can we just be that for other people and reach out in the grace and kindness of the Lord to others? That's gospel refraction. And my prayer is that not only would we do that, but that you, no matter what situation you're in in life, you would begin to build peace more and more into your life because of what God has done and because of his great love for you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are not deserving of this peace at all. We, we made war on you. We, we, we have attacked. We have gone after. We have, we have hurled our slurs at you. We have, we have done everything because of our sin. We have done everything possible to deserve condemnation and death. And you set the table. This is not, logically, Lord, this is not how the story should end. 
From our perspective, this is bad storytelling. And yet, that's not your story. Your story is one of kindness and love and grace. And we are the beneficiaries of that. And so, God, I pray for my friends in the room. First, let me pray. God, I want to lift up my friends who are in the room who are paralyzed with anxiety and worry, who are suffering because of it. God, I pray that in their minds, in their hearts, that your peace would guard them and that they would see more and more clearly that you are for them, you are around them, and you can supply everything that they need. And God, I pray for, also pray for all of us here who have experienced you in even the most minute, minuscule way, the smallest way. God, even that, may we refract that goodness to someone else so that others might see. We thank you, God, for these realities. We pray that you would manifest them in us over and over and over again. In Jesus' name, amen.